0: Bennington is a young scholar who is doing fascinating research on the relationships between rhetoric, embodiment and taekwondo. He's been on the podcast once before and he wanted to say a lot more about rhetoric at that time. But I closed him down a little bit because I wanted us to talk more about martial arts and martial arts studies. He gave a conference paper recently which was about the relationship between rhetoric and taekwondo and he has rather generously uh, given that to me and allowed me to share it with you now so instead of the usual interview format i'm going to hand over now to spencer bennington and his presentation on the relationships between taekwondo and rhetoric my name is dr spencer todd bennington I'm a professor of technical and professional communication at the University of South Florida in Tampa, and today I'll be discussing the concept of embodied rhetorics as it pertains to Olympic Taekwondo. Before I do, I would like to thank everyone who made this year's conference a possibility, especially Dr. John Johnson and Professor Udo Monig for welcoming my presentation. I am delighted and excited by this opportunity to share my scholarship with a wider audience, particularly one that is so interested in the academic study of Taekwondo. So thank you very much. I only began a serious critical inquiry into the history and philosophy of Taekwondo a few years ago as part of my dissertation research. During this time, I encountered a wide variety of scholarship from folks like Udo Monig, Paul Bowman, and others who all seemed to agree that it was important to investigate the ways in which we talk about Taekwondo. In fact, Paul has raised that very question at this conference. How exactly should we talk about Taekwondo? And what are the consequences for doing so? As a scholar whose disciplinary home is in writing studies and rhetoric, I'm very much interested in how discourse affects practice. I'm thankful for Monig's 2015 historical analysis of the ways in which Taekwondo was transformed from Korean karate into an international Olympic combat sport largely by the persuasive discourse of the state. And I'm fascinated by the ways in which scholars like Gillis, 2016, connect this discourse to underlying political tensions. I believe the ways we choose to talk about Taekwondo gives our martial art meaning. But I believe the ways in which we perform Taekwondo conveys meaning as well. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that individual techniques contain or embody arguments. Martial arts spokespeople and media, like movies or training manuals, certainly make explicit, persuasive arguments about martiality, fighting styles, and origin stories. But what about the techniques themselves? Can a roundhouse kick itself be rhetorical? I certainly believe so. As Ben Spatz reminds us, technique is simply, quote, knowledge that structures practice. As we all know, however, knowledge is very rarely stable or agreed upon, even in small disciplinary communities. Part of the reason we're gathered for this conference is to share research in order to create or transform our collective knowledge of Taekwondo. The art itself is divided into various organizations which all prioritize, propagate, and or dismiss various bits of technical knowledge, thus structuring their practice of Taekwondo slightly differently if knowledge is contested to the point that practice differs from one disciplinary community to the next even slightly then the techniques themselves become argumentative so let me return to my original question from a moment ago can a roundhouse kick be rhetorical to answer let's consider two very different types of roundhouse kick the first is a method that my original master referred to as a whip kick he called it this because the practitioner was to imagine their hip as the handle of a whip and their foot as the tail end. We were taught to drive our hip forward and leave our leg relaxed, focusing instead on pivoting our support foot fully and pushing our shoulder through the target. This roundhouse kick was designed purely for brute force power. The inherent argument at the time was that you could only score reliably by registering a quote, trembling shock. So every technique must be executed with absolute power. The second roundhouse kick is one executed from the front leg, often from a f- pre chambered position. This kick derives its power and speed more from the quadricep and hamstring, as the practitioner is usually hopping forward from a position where the hip has already rotated. The inherent argument in this technique is that speed and accuracy are the utmost concern for a sparring competition, now that electronic scoring and graduated scoring for head kicks has become commonplace. Simply put, These two roundhouse kicks represent implicit arguments about what Taekwondo represents and the metrics used to determine superior athletes. These are simply two versions of the technique that make implicit arguments about the usefulness of speed and or power in competition. Consider the totally vertical roundhouse kick of high level Pumse competitors, or perhaps the acrobatic 540 roundhouse of Taekwondo demonstration experts. These techniques make totally different arguments about the art, and how it should be performed. The idea that a physical athletic technique or system of practice can have a reciprocal and recursive relationship with rhetorical theory or argument is not my own. Deborah Hawhey's 2004 book, Bodily Arts, provides a detailed account of the ways in which rhetoric was embodied through athletic and martial practice during the age of the first Olympics in ancient Greece. Here, when I say the word rhetoric, I prefer to use contemporary theorist Wayne C. Booth's definition, the entire range of resources human beings share to produce effects on one another. This definition does not restrict rhetoric to one form of delivery, like speech or writing, nor to a particular genre of communication, like persuasion. Instead, the focus is on the purpose and on the effect. It's the duty of rhetorical scholars to uncover the connections between purpose, audience, design, delivery, and effect. Classically, rhetoric and athletics were always intertwined. Hawhee 2004, describes how ancient gymnasia, like the Greek Lyceum, often treated the education of the body as synonymous with the education of the mind. As she points out, a citizen of the polis must exhibit a type of, quote, bodily intelligence, that extends and adapts to a variety of new situations. She combines the term metis, usually translated as, quote, wily intelligence, derived from the name of Zeus's first wife, a shapeshifter, and hexis, typically meaning a stable state or disposition maintained by a series of habits, to describe the Greek notion of developing a bodily habit practice of mental and rhetorical flexibility, adaptability, and cunning. Embodying this idea of metis hexis became the ultimate goal for Olympic wrestlers looking to escape a submission, as well as statesmen arguing a case in a court of law. This is just one example of how concepts from rhetorical training become adopted by the body in practical ways, but the reverse was also true. Hawhey describes how the conjunction of martial arts like pancreation or boxing and philosophy lectures were reciprocally responsible for a development of rhetorical concepts like kairos or opportune timing. According to Hawi the ancient Greeks viewed the kairotic body as one that through training was just as adept at countering a punch as it would be an argument. In other words, the ancient Greek tethering of rhetorical theory and athleticism is, in many ways, a chicken and egg relationship. That is to say, One might ask which came first, the shoulder throw or the syllogism, the counterpoint or the counterpunch. Of course, ancient Greek athletics embodied ancient Greek cultural ideas. But, as I began to plot out the trajectory of my dissertation research, I wondered if this concept holds true in other cultures and in other time periods. This led me to investigate the ways in which ancient Chinese rhetorics and philosophy, particularly those extending from the Confucian and Taoist schools of thought, were combined with physical culture. Ultimately, I investigated the connections between Taoist cosmology, as described in the I Ching, and the Teguk Pumse of the 20th century. I wanted to know how Taekwondo masters described concepts like the principles of Pogwe in practitioner manuals how these cultural arguments about human behavior were connected to discrete techniques in the Pumse, and how the practice of these techniques facilitated the development of intrapersonal skills like creativity, confidence, or enthusiasm in the student. Just like in Ho analysis, Taekwondo features a bi-directional and recursive relationship between rhetoric and bodies. Ideas and arguments affect the production or employment of one's body, just as the body can produce or transform ideas and lend itself to arguments. In completing this project, I realized that discrete techniques in Taekwondo Pumse convey arguments, at least in some capacity. For example, the combination movement of a back-stance single-knife hand block to a long-stance middle punch in Form 3, Taeguk Samjang, is said to correlate to the Ri principle and the liveliness of a flickering flame the pattern reminds us to consider the nature of change and dynamism as a component of our own passion and enthusiasm for learning, training, and growing. I believe all martial arts represent a set of cultural arguments communicated through the body. Taekwondo and other martial arts that utilize forms or patterns for solo practice certainly make arguments through technique in prescribed ways that can be taught, standardized, and concretized through discourse and media like training manuals. But what about the many other manifestations of Taekwondo? Do activities like board breaking, demonstration routines, and Olympic sparring all operate rhetorically as well? I believe that they do. In order to understand how, I'd like to share a heuristic with you that I use for analyzing the three recursive participants that typically make up what's labeled as the rhetorical situation. Purpose, audience, and design. I understand the many manifestations of Taekwondo to be rhetorical, and that they have been purposely invented, designed, and iterated for an intended audience in response to, or situated within some kind of socio-political exigency. Understanding the rhetorical situation provides researchers with useful questions to ask of any martial art when trying to uncover how it might produce effects for various audiences. These questions can be organized by the three recursive participants. Questions of purpose might include, what is the intended effect, action, or outcome? What evidence supports this? Who gets to decide this purpose? What is their positionality and or level of privilege? What is their relationship to or power dynamic with the intended or unintended audiences? Questions of audience might include, who is intentionally or unintentionally affected by this design? What's their demographic makeup? What's the relationship or power dynamic with the speaker, author, rator, designer, etc.? And in what capacity are audiences affected? What evidence demonstrates this? Questions of design might include, what has been invented, created, or iterated? What are its defining characteristics? What choices went into this design? How do those choices impact its development and reception? And how might changes to this design produce different effects on target audiences? Of course, it's also important to know how to evaluate the context of a rhetorical situation. The following questions interrogate the chronospatial dimensions, historical positioning, and underlying exigency of rhetorical situations. Questions of context might include, to what extent is there a cultural, political, social urgency, exigency, or impetus for the design? How might historical events or cultural memory affect some audience's reception of the design? And what is the occasion or expected decorum? Is the design timely and responsive to expected genres? These questions lie at the foundation of any rhetorical analysis, and I believe they can help martial arts researchers defamiliarize themselves with their objects of study, as Bowman 2019 advocates in his book, Deconstructing Martial Arts. Today, I want to briefly discuss some of the ways this diagram and its associated questions might help us understand Taekwondo's debut as an Olympic combat sport, and how its prominence on the world stage contributes to various embodied rhetorics both on the level of media spectacle and individual technique. When analyzing the rhetorical effect of broadcasting Taekwondo sparring to the world in 1988, it's useful to consider questions of purpose. Primarily, what was the intended effect, action, or outcome? And who got to decide this purpose? What was their positionality and level of privilege? The plan to bring the 24th Olympic Games to Seoul, with Taekwondo featured as an exi- exhibition event, according to Ha and Mangan, 2002, would have certainly allied with Park Chung-hee's view of the national sports movement as a militaristic nationalist movement, one where the best Korean athletes served as, quote, warriors symbolizing the vitality, self-respect, and self-confidence of the nation on an international stage. Park and his ministers wanted the opportunity for a grand unveiling of their newly reconstructed nation, one similar to the kind of spectacle seen in the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. Like Japan before them, the Korean government would capitalize on their opportunity to host the 1988 Olympics as a way to demonstrate to the world their economic revival. Larson and Park, 1993, go so far as to describe the Seoul Olympics as a type of international political communication, a way to legitimize the rock's military dictatorship. On the granular bodily level, Taekwondo forwarded this argument as well, much like judo, sumo wrestling, and kendo served as symbols of Japanese martial prowess in 1964. Next, I ask questions of design regarding taekwondo sparring. Some of these include, what exactly has been invented, created, or iterated, and what are its defining characteristics? What choices went into this design, and how do those choices impact its development and reception? By this point in Taekwondo history, the martial art had started to become more than just a vehicle for propaganda or a self-defense system adapted from Japanese styles. As Moning 2015 presents in great detail, this time period is one where Taekwondo finally began to form a unique identity through the rapid technical development of the combat sport. The combination of new protective gear the introduction of full-contact, continuous fighting, and rules against hand strikes to the head were the first catalysts for this evolution, but many more changes would come in rapid succession. By 1988, Taekwondo was visually distinct enough to capture the hearts and minds of spectators worldwide with its lightning-fast kicks and powerful knockout techniques. As a result of its growing popularity and Kim eun tireless lobbying efforts, Taekwondo became an official metal sport in 2000. Questions of audience and context are a bit intertwined in this assessment, given the massive cultural effect Bruce Lee's media legacy had on the popularity of martial arts, especially those involving kicking. As the rhetorical context and media landscape changed, so too did the audience for Olympic Taekwondo as we know it today. Understanding embodied rhetorics as they manifest in contemporary Taekwondo sparring is as simple as looking at the current graduated scoring system for significant strikes. The differential between a single point for a punch to the body and five points awarded for a turning kick to the head indicates that the practice of Taekwondo rewards more challenging, dynamic strikes. In this way, the techniques demonstrated at the Olympic level make arguments about combat sports in general. They are spectacles for audiences looking for exciting, dramatic competitions, As well as skill testing arenas for athletes this argument is quite different from what is embodied in other olympic combat sports like judo or boxing and quite different indeed from the focus of pure pragmatism in competitions like the ufc when i look at olympic sparring i see an argument about one way to discuss and understand taekwondo it is a complex game of speed and timing one where competitors are rewarded for taking risks and executing difficult techniques of course this is but one facet of Taekwondo, an art that means many things to many different people. But it is also one of the most highly publicized iterations, perhaps the dominant lens through which the international public views it. For this, I'm actually grateful. Of the many varieties of Taekwondo practice, I feel the contemporary iteration of sport sparring is the best equipped to embody arguments that are not necessarily tied to nationalism, racial superiority, or violent dominance. Instead, I think Taekwondo as a modern combat sport is more reminiscent of the classical concept of the Aegon as it was known in ancient Greece, the beautiful struggle between opposing forces designed to improve all competitors involved. It's from this mindset that arguments about global peace and Korean reunification have been made, and I see this as a beginning of a bright future for Taekwondo to come. I've talked briefly about quite a few subjects today, so I wanted to recap some of the points that I think are most important. First, the ways we choose to talk about Taekwondo gives our martial art meaning, but the ways in which we perform Taekwondo conveys meaning as well. Individual techniques contain or embody arguments. Two, Booth's definition of rhetoric is, quote, the entire range of resources human beings share to produce effects on one another. And it's this definition that I think is most important for understanding how exactly martial arts can be rhetorical. 3. I understand the many manifestations of Taekwondo to be rhetorical in that they have been purposely invented, designed, and iterated for an intended audience in response to or situated within some kind of sociopolitical exigency. 4. Taekwondo embodies Taoist, Confucian, Zen, and nationalist rhetorics in Pumse, but certain cultural arguments are also present in other forms of practice. 5. Olympic sparring embodies arguments about how to prioritize and reward training through the graduated scoring system, rules that prohibit hand strikes to the head, and penalties for falling down. These rules and other factors affect the way athletes train and perform the art to the point that it hardly resembles what it looked like in 1988. In many ways, I think this is a good thing. Taekwondo is starting to become truly shared and iterated by multiple audiences internationally, instead of tightly controlled by a singular government or political group. In this way, I think that it is evolving into a more authentic representation of the classical Olympic ethos of the Aegon, the beautiful struggle benefiting all competitors involved. This transformation lends itself to new diplomatic opportunities related to peace and reunification more so than previous iterations. I look forward to discussing these ideas with you further as our conference approaches. Thank you so much for your attention. Kamsamira!